Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Before I introduce our speaker today, um, it's our custom to go around and introduce ourselves. <coughs> Take a moment to look at each other. And if you see someone that you haven't seen before, make a point of welcoming them in the after time. I'm Joe Good. My name is Andre. <coughs> I'm Carl Wolf. I'm Kei Matsuda. My name is Michael. I'm Chris. My name is Tony. I'm Bruce. My name is Eric. <coughs> I'm Peter. I'm Len. My name is Harley. David. I'm Victor. Ron. Peter. I'm John. I'm Len. I'm Roger. I'm Jerry. Michael. Jack. Mark. Connor. I'm Lee. My name is Paige. I'm Eric. My name is Jerry Jones. My name is Oswaldo. I'm Michael. Oh, I'm Michael. You well. I'm Jim Stewart. I'm Ethan. I'm Brian. Alan. My name is Ella. Eric. Jim. I'm Mark. I'm Tom Brown. My name is Clint. And I'm Ed Eng. My name is Donald. George. Peter. Welcome, everyone. Our speaker today is Donald Rothberg. Donald Rothberg is a member of the Spirit Rock Teachers Council. And he writes, teaches classes, gives groups and retreats on meditation, daily life practice, and socially engaged Buddhism. He also has a body-based psychotherapy practice and is a board member of the has been a board member of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship over many years. His experience uniquely combines a long record of activism and organizing, extensive teaching, and leadership roles in pioneering programs that weave together social action with spirituality. He has guided several training programs, both interfaith and Buddhist-based, that engage spirituality for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, Saybrook, and Spirit Rock. He is the author of The Engaged Spiritual Life, a Buddhist approach to transforming ourselves and the world. Welcome. Oh, thank you. So it's um, very good to be here again and to see a lot of familiar faces. Um, and I, I was also reflecting on the... Um, Connection, the, really, some of the origins of the Gay Buddhist um, Fellowship in, in, in one of our Buddhist Peace Fellowship Summer Institutes from about 20 years ago. I don't know if you all know that history, but um, one, uh, we were doing summer institutes in the early 90s for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, and one summer we uh, decided to experiment with. Um, a format in which we uh, left the whole afternoon unstructured and unscheduled. And we, we had about 120 people present, and we um, facilitated uh, self-organizing groups forming in the afternoon. We scheduled the mornings. We had elders in the morning, and we had playful activities in the evening. And the afternoon, we had we we let the hundred twenty people there self organize, and one of the groups, there were, I think there were six groups that ended up forming with different 
<clears throat> different interests. And one of them, um, I believe, if, if I remember right, and someone might correct me, I, <clears throat> I believe that it was actually um, uh, gay and lesbians came together in a group. Uh, and were a very strong group and met for six days every afternoon for two or three hours. And out of that experience came the Gay Buddhist Fellowship. That's, is that accurate to those who know the history? Better than me, or anyone? Sounds good. It <laughs> better be some historians, right? I could just make it up myself. <laughs> that would be so. Uh, but that's my that's my memory, and and so I I always feel um, a connection coming here because I was one of the organizers for the whole event, for the whole um, summer institute. So. Um, it's good to be here again. It seems like I appreciate the continuity of people here. I, I recognize, um, feels like half or more of the faces. You know, so it's, um, it's good to be here. And I thought of exploring a topic today that actually is not so much connected directly <coughs> with a theme that I often explore, which is that of how our inner work can be connected with our work in the world or our service or our activism. I think it has implications for that, but it's not directly uh, connected with that. And I wanted to talk about um, two core models of practice and how they relate to each other. And I think, it, for me, it's very helpful to reflect in these ways to have a larger sense of what I'm doing and what many of us are doing. And we could call these two models uh, by different names. One way to talk about the two models would be to talk about linear and nonlinear models of spiritual practice. The linear model meaning we practice, we're going in a direction, we're moving towards a goal. And the nonlinear model meaning um, on certain levels not about getting anywhere. Uh, another way to talk about it would be to focus more on what we might call the relative and the almost like the uh, developmental aspects of practice. Again, very similar. We, we cultivate mindfulness, we cultivate an open heart, we work through stuff, right? We get somewhere. Very clear sense of practice. And the other could be called more of an absolute perspective that from that perspective, we can get lost in thinking we're getting somewhere and in thinking we're developing. So that's what I want to explore today and leave a lot of time for uh, discussion and see how the, and, and also see how this actually is not just a way of seeing our, our, our practice, but also can be very, very practical in terms of how these models integrate and how, if we're more on one side, we might want to emphasize the other, and vice versa, of course. So, um, so the first model is the main model, for example, that we use at Spirit Rock, you know, where, where I teach quite a bit. It's the model, uh, really the main model given by the Buddha, historically, it's a model where we cultivate certain qualities and where we develop in mindfulness and wisdom and open our hearts. And it's a gradual model of gradual movement towards awakening. We can see as we practice how we can develop further. We can see how practice makes a difference. We can become more mindful. We can see the patterns in our minds more clearly, especially in the first periods of practice, we can see all the ways that it's hard to be present, that it's hard to be mindful. We, and many of us, um, as we practice longer, we work with increasingly subtle uh, patterns that distract us or that um, block our open hearts, or that are linked with old wounds which only heal slowly. You know, and we, we may work with uh, those kind of practices. We work, with, you know, we work in a gradual way. We, we um, 
move slowly. Our direction is towards awakening. In the, in the text of the Buddha, the direction is towards awakening or nirvana. But we spend, in terms of the core teaching of the four truths, which, which I assume many of you, most of you know, the truth that there is suffering, that there are roots of suffering, and that there is a, uh, a peace, uh, a depth of peace and luminous being that's open to us. And then fourthly, that there's a path towards that. In a lot of our practice, we spend most of the time with the first two truths, suffering and the roots of suffering. And we look carefully at them. This is really, you know, when, when you looked at the text of the Buddha, this is where he spent most of, gave most of his attention. Really, he gave all sorts of models of how we get stuck and caught, right? And we become, as we practice more, we become experts at our own neuroses. If we're successful. <laughs> right? And we, and it's actually really important. We add a, I think, um, you know, when, when I was beginning practice, I was especially interested in being peaceful and calm and so forth. As we progress in practice, we become more interested in our own suffering. And actually, times of suffering can be greeted with interest. Ah, something more to understand. You know, I think if when we have a certain perspective, practice can accelerate when we have that perspective, rather than, I thought this meditation was supposed to work everything out within three years, or at least five years, or at least 20 years, you know, and so forth. So, um, so we have this sense of uh, a patient, gradual practice where we, where we sit and we have, uh, we observe what's going on, we have kind of a patience. There's a, a beautiful poem by uh, Pablo Neruda from, from Chile, which expresses for me this sense of a, a gradual practice. I thought I would read this. It really expresses the sense that we are partly aware and partly unaware. You know, when, when we, go, we go about our lives not feeling like we're quite there where we want to get, but we keep moving, we keep uh, working. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. Does practice feel like that sometimes? Sitting on the rim of the well of darkness and, and at times there's light, at times there's suffering, at times there's just distraction, right? Or just the mind keeps on moving around in circles or octagons or whatever pattern, patterns the mind moves in. And so, in that model of practice, we see more and more greed, hatred, and delusion. We see more and more. We have periods of peace. But the model really is that of moving towards awakening. And we might sort of wonder, especially if we do retreats, when is awakening going to occur? We may have thought that, especially if been in five or 10 or 20 years. What's this awakening business? Do I sit and suddenly there's a big explosion with fireworks? Kind of the, I don't know, the psychedelic drug model of awakening, you might say. Or where we sit and you know, suddenly there's, you know, I don't know, angels come down and there's music and all of a sudden the, the mind opens up into uh, radiant levels of heavenly choirs or something. <laughs> people do experience those things. You know, that people can experience those kind of visions. But is that, is that what awakening is like? Or, and we might, we might have glimpses, but often it's a question, what about this awakening? We can see gradual development. It's good enough, very important. And where does awakening occur? You know, and we read in the text that there are these different levels of awakening. Right? And so, what about, what about awakening? What does it mean? And so, this first model, 
is that of this gradual development. And what's not always very clear is whether we're going to get to the goal and what the goal feels like and what it looks like. So, a second model. Second model focuses more on the quality of awakening and I think it's implicit in a lot of the actual texts of the Buddha but not always so well developed. In those texts, nirvana is understood as the unconditioned. Meaning that it can't be produced. That you can't practice and somehow produce awakening because it's unconditioned. And so sometimes it's said that awakening is a kind of an accident. Or in Christian language, it comes by grace. But in, so I've heard it said in Buddhist settings that awakening is like an accident. And what practice does is it makes us more accident prone. They want to have another metaphor. <laughs> but, that, but, that's, but there's something about this quality of awakening as being unconditioned that's very interesting. And in, in the teachings of the Buddha and in uh, some of the way the tradition developed, there is a sense uh, that's there, not always emphasized so much, of what we might call an inherent awakening that's there in every being, in every sentient being, and that is simply covered over, covered over by our ignorance, we might say. And in, in the text, there are places where the Buddha says, luminous is this heart and mind, but covered over. And there, there are many texts where that kind of inherent luminosity of our being is talked about even for people who do very bad things. It's universal. It's not something that's achieved or manufactured or the result of something, but it's that it's there in a way with all of us. Not developed so much in the early, early tradition. In uh, later traditions, it becomes emphasized somewhat more. <clears throat> and there's the teaching of the Buddha nature, which probably some of you work with in your practice. There's a sense of the Buddha nature which is there in all beings and doesn't have to be manufactured, but more uncovered. And so in a number of traditions, there are ways of uncovering that sense of inherent awakening but it's not something, again, that's taken to be manufactured. You know, so, for example, there are ways in uh, Tibetan tradition. Some of you may know the, the Dzogchen tradition. How many people have some familiarity with Dzogchen in the Tibetan tradition? Okay, so, um, not so. <laughs> Good, like... Then I have I have the risk of making stuff up. <laughs> so, um, but in in the Dzogchen tradition, it's taken that our essential nature is available to be touched, and in fact, it's a teaching of accessing that uh, that inher that inherent luminosity through something that's there ordinarily, which is our awareness. And it's taken that that inherent luminosity has the quality of a kind of pure awareness and can be accessed through our own awareness. That our own awareness has, we might say, aspects which are pure. And there are methods for touching into that purity which is taken to be there at any time. In the actual tradition, there are a lot of prerequisites before that teaching is given because it's essentially a teaching of not doing anything. It's a teaching of non-meditation. The instructions typically are be aware of this large awareness, but don't do anything. But don't be distracted. 
It's like one teacher gave me instructions. I did a 10-day retreat. And this teacher, the only instruction he gave me was a little bit different language, was don't meditate and be aware of the absolute for 10 days. See, I, um, I already had been practicing for that. wouldn't have been a skillful introductory direction, <laughs> probably. But, but that, was, that was the instruction at first. Don't do anything. Don't meditate. But don't be distracted and be aware of the absolute. So it's kind of like a Zen koan, right? How do, how do you do that? And it was really fascinating experience in many ways because what I found was that um, it was very hard not to do anything especially having meditated so long. You know, I was meditating. I said, oh, I'm meditating. I'm not supposed to be meditating. I'm not supposed to be deliberately having attention. And then I would find myself able, you know, there was a lot of insights into all the ways that I actually do, or that, that there is some doing coming out of a sense of self. And one of the most uh, hilarious moments came when I thought that I was really succeeding at not doing much. And I said, I am really not doing very, very well. <laughs> you know, in other words, you, know, you got it, right? I'm, <laughs> I am I'm a I'm really doing not doing. So I could see the I could see the, the how I was caught in my own net, so to speak. And um, but there would be those kind of those kind of instructions. In other traditions you know, uh, in some of the tra traditions of Sufism, that sense of the absolute might be felt by touching one's longing for God. That, that there is a quality present in all of these traditions. It's taken that something in our very ordinary experience, if we somehow settle into it in a pure way, can open us up to something very large. We can do that through awareness. We can do that in Sufi tradition and in some Jewish mystical traditions through longing, longing for God. We touch into that longing. You probably know some of the poems, like you know Rumi, probably many of you know some of those poems of, of spiritual longing. When one touches the longing and uses it as a practice, and very much like my practice, you refine it. You don't, it's not like you get into this ego-centered longing. But the longing can be purified and open up to something larger. One of my um, uh, teachers, in uh, more psychological teachers, has developed a whole system of uh, body-based work which really opens up in this way. It's really, it's really based on the notion that our, our ignorance, our confusion, our woundedness, all represent what we might call fragmented states of our being. That there's an inherent wholeness that due, you know, and he's, he's looked at it more psychologically, due to our upbringing, you know, at certain points, Something in us wants to, you know, let's say I come from a family where anger isn't okay, right? And I'm a three-year-old, and I start getting angry just as a natural response to being, and it's, squel it's squished, right? Then I start to fragment, right? I can't, I can't have that wholeness because just part of me isn't um, acceptable, right? And it could be, it could be anger, it could be all sorts of things are not acceptable, and I start to fragment. And, and I internalize, because I'm three and I really need the safety of the family, very few three-year-old kids are going to fight for their own anger being okay, right? What do we normally do? We normally squish it, we fit in. We internally suppress the anger, and then we judge ourselves when we get angry, and we judge other people who can't control themselves, right? And we, we exist in a fragmented state, and that fragmentation occurs in all sorts of ways. And we lose that wholeness, and yet, how do you, how do you find that wholeness? Um, I want to use a method right now that's very, very simple, because one of, one of the ways that the second model works 
is that we find ways to access a kind of wholeness in the moment and learn to stabilize more. I mentioned some of the Dzogchen methods work with awareness. Sufism might work with longing. Another way of working is to find where there's some quality in the moment that has aspects of awakening. It could be clarity, it could be even mindfulness, it could be caring. And we touch that and let it expand and let it be okay if all sorts of other stuff is there, but we kind of let that get bigger. We let those, um, those more awakened places get bigger. So I want to do a little exercise right now. Are you okay for an exercise? Okay. Because this is something for me, it's a, it's a simple way of manifesting this. So this is going to have two parts. And with the exercise, if at any time during the exercise you feel like standing up, you can do that. Okay. Or moving in different, direct, different ways. Just try to, um, um, yeah, just stay in the room, basically. <laughs> um, so, first, I want to invite you to contemplate a moment, maybe in the recent past, could be even right now, when you feel a little bit stuck. And this is a degree of stuckness no more than six or seven on a scale of ten. Not the worst stuckness. Okay. Five to seven on a degree of ten. So it might, might have been a difficult interaction with someone. It might be a mood. It could be an emotion. Bring to mind that, that quality of stuckness or contraction. <coughs> And then let it sculpt your body. Let it form your body. So for me, if I'm doing and I remember something that I was a little agitated, I notice my body getting a little tense, maybe, and exaggerate this a little bit. My hands are clenching a little bit. My chest is um, caving in a little bit. My shoulders are more rounded. And you can go into whatever form you want. If you want to really exaggerate and really get into it, that's fine. And let yourself do that right now. Let that sculpt your body. Again, you can exaggerate it some just to so you feel it more. And really notice, notice how your body is when you're more contracted. Notice what your, the way your mind is, your emotions. And, and really you can also notice very specifically what's my own pattern? How, what, how are my hands, my shoulders, my chest? This becomes a way of knowing more quickly with mindfulness when we get stuck, when we do, when we study our own patterns. And then slowly let yourself move into a way of being, especially with your body, that you might call more empowered, more uh, more awake. And you can, again, you can let your hands do whatever they're going to do, your chest, you can, if you want to stand up, you can do that. Let yourself feel more empowered, more awake. Or let me even say, let, feel empowered and awake right now, as much as that's accessible. Again, can move, can stand up. And again, notice uh, the cues in your body that let you know that you're in a more awake place. 
Again, for me, it could be my hands tend to be more open and relaxed. My chest is open, my spine is straight. The energy is flowing. Really no, no, notice those cues. Make it kind of a bookmark. So you might easily go there. And then the, um, the invitation is, stay in this empowered or awake place for the rest of your lives. <laughs> Only half joking. And, and then we can come back just to being present. So in, in that exercise, we, that's one method that we might use. We might use of actually going and using the body. This is some of what I've learned in training in the Hokomi approach to body-based psychotherapy, using the body to give cues as to that awakened state. And it's actually possible to use this in a very simple way to bring you back to more centeredness when you're waiting for a bus at a meeting. You know, I, I, do, the, I do these kind of exercises at a meeting. I notice that my hands are getting clenched if I'm doing that, and I release them. And it's, very, it's kind of subtle. But it's very interesting. What we're looking for, and the reason I'm discussing this as part of this second model, is what we're looking for are ways to access a more awakened place quickly, right? And to kind of see if we can keep going there. In the Dzogchen tradition of doing this, in initially doing it, one goes there and it only lasts for a few seconds. So you keep on doing it. Many, many, many times you go to a more awake place for five seconds or ten seconds. And then you, you um, keep on coming back. And what we do, what we see also, and what we saw in the first part of that exercise, is that we actually in going in the second model for going to a more awake place, we, we do something similar to what we learned in using the first model, is that we learn all the way, we learn about our own ways of being contracted. You know, or we learn how it's hard to go there, right? Some of that may have come up. And so there's the, there are these methods that we can find in different traditions that access a more awakened state. In some traditions, it's taken that it's our thinking which complicates everything, right? And so some methods, they would do something like startle you. And in that split second after the startle, there's no thinking. So some of the methods access it that way, right? So how do we access? Some, some of us may access it through beauty or through other, other qualities, through beauty or through the open heart, that we can access that sense of, of a kind of awakening that's almost uh, not personal. And, that's, and that's, that's what's done in the second model. And so how do they, how do they go together? They, seem, they can seem different, right? The one gradual practice, which again has been my main model for most of my time of practice, has been I sit, I develop, I become more mindful, more concentrated, I see more, I notice my patterns, I keep doing that. And the second model of accessing a quality of being awake or more awake, that in a way, in, in, the, in some of the Tibetan traditions, it's said that one's path, you take the fruition of the path as your path, if that makes sense. You take, rather than continually working for the fruition, which may come who knows when, one learns how to access the fruition of the path more moment to moment in different ways and have that be stabilized. Now, how do they work together? Interestingly, the second approach seems to require quite a high degree of mindfulness and concentration. That when people try to do that second approach without, let's say, some years of development, of practice, I think what probably most of us have been doing for some time, they don't get so far. 
<coughs> it doesn't work so well. In the Tibetan system, this Dzogchen practice was the, was the ninth <coughs> of nine levels. People have to learn really, really well meditate before you tell them how not to meditate. So those of you who have been meditating, I'm sorry to tell you that the goal of your meditation is to not meditate. But that's okay. And, and the, um, so it, it seems to require this. One of the Tibetan teachers I've worked with named Sony Rinpoche, he said it took him 15 years to learn why his Western students weren't really progressing so well with his practice because they didn't have some of the prerequisites that really made this practice stabilize. It's interesting, right? It's interesting in that way. And so there's a way in which the two approaches really require each other, that we need to cultivate all these qualities in a gradual way using a developmental model, and that makes it possible, more possible, to access a sense of awakening. One way this is said, one of the Tibetan teachers who's, um, who's, uh, who's the father, actually, of the teacher I made named Sokni Rinpoche, named Tolku Ergen, who died about uh, 15 years ago, he said it this way. He said, the difference between Buddhas and ordinary beings is diligence. It's really somehow knowing that awakened quality is not, there's no fundamental difference in our natures. So basically very good news. And yet it takes energy and practice to open, to open up to that. And so, for example, I work in my own practice with both approaches. And I generally try to stabilize my mind first, using the breath and using other tools. And when there's some degree of stability, then I can open up to this kind of very large awareness that can increasingly be stabilized and is really a taste of a, what we might call a, almost an impersonal awakening which includes everything. And they can work together in that way. So I think my invitation would be, if this makes some sense, and you've been primarily working with the first model, you might explore ways to develop the second. And it sounds, and if you've been working more with the second, and you may be in need of the first model. My guess is that most of us here have been working with that first more developmental and gradual model. And what the second <coughs> model offers is actually, um, can offer a lot of inspiration and it can give some fresh energy at times. Sometimes our practice needs that kind of fresh energy. And that sense of awakening doesn't require necessarily special methods. Sometimes when we're just present and sitting, these moment, moments can open up like that, right? We can have moments with beauty, or moments by the ocean, or moments with a partner, and something just opens up. There's a kind of presence that's very large that can open up, just very naturally. And then we say, hmm, that was nice. <laughs> and we, but sometimes hard to bring it back, right? So it's a very, it's a very natural quality. And it, I think, is very, very much possible to integrate this. So I hope this is useful, that uh, to really make an adjustment with one's practice to consider looking for if you've been primarily doing the first model, to consider looking to find ways to open up to that awake quality, which is really our birthright. So I'll stop here, and maybe let's have about a minute of silent sitting together, and then we can talk together some.
Let me go back to that sense of feeling empowered or awake, whatever language works for you. Just feeling that in the moment right now. Thank you. Thank you for your attention and have some time for talking together. Please. I'm reminded that I heard David Spangler speak thousands of years ago, um, and someone asked him the difference between karma and grace. Mm-hmm. Um, which, um, and he said, karma is like looking through a hole in the fence, and you see the consequences. You know, consequences of your specific life through that narrowing. Mm. And his grace is no fence. Mm. You know, it's just that sense of vast presence. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I was reminded of that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's just interesting to see how each of us holds both that detail and something very wide at the same time. Again, there's... Um, um, there's an interesting expression of that also in the, in the also in the Tibetan tradition. Some of you know Padmasambhava, right, the person who brought uh, Buddhism to Tibet. He said, "Although my view is vast as the sky, I also am completely attentive to the grains of to a grain of barley." And that was that was actually linked in, in some way. It's 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 uh, being having this big perspective, but also attending to the karma, the details of one's life. And for, for him, that latter was connected also with compassion, right? You you can the the you know when we when we uh, get too far towards this large view or the empowered sense, we can lose sense of the detail and lose and maybe have this vast view. Oh yes. Everything's coming and going. There's suffering, delusion. You know, and it, maybe he's not so compassionate. Yeah. Thank you. Please, uh, Clint. Yeah. Well, I was just uh, trying to correlate what you're saying to other teachers I've had. And, um, the idea that you have to have a discipline before you give up the discipline. Yeah. I, I wonder if that's similar to you have to have an ego before you can transcend the ego. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's I think that's a helpful connection. That they're both um, they're both developmental models. You know, in other words, the person who said you have to have an ego or a self that was uh, Jack Engler, was a psychologist who said that, or a psychologist and meditation teacher. And that was saying that there's a way in which uh, you have to have a, he- a healthy self. You know, a healthy self is a product of ordinary development. And some of us have had fragmented selves. And we may, and, and you know, I know as a teacher, it's important for me to be able to distinguish between people who are talking about some kind of emptiness or some, something lacking because they don't have a healthy self, and those who do. Right? That's because I, it's something one can notice. People come up and uh, are maybe um, sometimes I've been with people who um, talk a lot about spaciousness and it's a little more spacey. <laughs> Or they're talking about emptiness, but they can't hold a job well, something like that. And, and so I think there is there is a connection that um, developmentally, it's helpful to. You know, I think this is an important part of practice: is to get a sense of where's my personal edge of learning right now. And it it might not, you know, it might be to really have my practice get expressed in my work. Could be, you know, or it might be to really, um, it might be to go more outward, you know, like to help the world, right? It could be that. I think there, you know, there are these cycles, and 
developmentally, we may need to really work on some of our own woundedness. Very important uh, as part of our practice. And that could be very much connected with developing uh, more mindfulness, more of an ability to have an open heart with loving kindness, those kind of practices. And that might be very much connected with having a healthy self, right? And then when that's there, then, you know, it's often, I think it often is a question of that people come to in their practice, well, I feel pretty good, what now? What's next? Is there anything that's next? Um, and, and then that can be, that can actually be partly, there are a lot of people who, you know, a lot of people when we first practice, it's up and down, it's rocky, you know, ups and downs and so forth. Some people tend to, at a certain point, get somewhat stabilized. And that's a question of what comes next for me. And it might be to go into some of these areas that might be beyond the, beyond the well-integrated self, right? Or to explore that territory. What is that? And some of it's with this second model would be the opening to opening more and more to these these awakened qualities. Yeah. Does that help some? Yes. It, 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 also, I just I just more of a comment and a question. I noticed during the exercise, if I'm trying to visualize myself at the contracted state and then in the state that's not contracted. Yeah. I, I saw when I visited the contracted state. Even though I could see it was contracted. I also felt there was part of me that really did not want to give that up. Yeah. That I actually really said, this is this is the right place to be rather than I yeah. don't know if that's exactly the right terminology, but I mean yeah. it, it wasn't like I'm, I'm gonna say the pain that I'll do anything to get out of this. I mean there is there is that element too. There's also part of say, I'm feeling really contracted, but I don't want to give up this contraction for some yeah. reason in some way it served a purpose for me. Yeah. Does anyone relate to that? Anyone have similar <laughs> Similar experience, yeah. It's very interesting, isn't it? Um, multiple levels. So that's very that's great to see. It's subtle some, sometimes, uh, and um, yeah, well, you know, our our contraction or whatever we call it, our contraction, our suffering, very familiar. It's like home sometimes, and I know for myself sometimes I preferred known suffering to the unknown. And um, and so that's very helpful. And and then, but also to notice that, to, you know, that awareness that's noticing it is yet larger, right? That's that's where so many traditions they find the the real um, essence of this larger state is is connected with awareness, and it's the mindfulness that can actually note the mindfulness that notices that you were having that preference for the contracted state is not itself contracted, right? And so what we do is we can hone in there. And when we do, if, we, if you do these, something like these practices that I get, you know, just that simple one that I gave, and you find that helpful, the key is you keep on staying with the more empowered or awakened state, even if the other stuff is around, it's okay. It's not like it has to be 100% there. You can say, go to an empowered state or an awakened state, and be there, and then you, and then your mind say, says, "I know this isn't going to last very long," you know, where you start making comments, or you know, or you know, and that's okay. That's 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 really important if you, if, you know, because for me this is a kind of a practice that one can do, and it's really important just to keep on staying with that larger state and letting all the commentary just be part of the space, but don't worry about it. You know, and you keep on letting, focusing on the, the more expanded state and letting it get bigger. It's a very, it's a very powerful, can be very, it's a very simple practice, isn't it? But it can be very, very powerful. Yeah, please. I, uh, your discussion of the second model uh, brought to mind something, uh, a childhood experience. Yeah. Uh, and uh, thinking back of it, it was uh, uh, a spontaneous wonder about it. Wow, this yeah. is such an amazing thing, and, and, and uh, I think it, you know, looking back over my life, it's, it was there was things like that, and I recall one one incident in particular, uh, <coughs> which I brought up in in uh, at least uh, 
close to 60 years, so 63, it must have been about seven or eight, just uh, driving down, uh, uh, my parents were in the front seat, I was in the back seat, and I had this sort of long sense, it's like, wow, <laughs> and how lucky I am to have these parents. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's interesting, because it's something that came up spontaneously that has been at the core of a lot of my practice uh, yeah. in subsequent years. Yeah, that's, it, it works like that. There, there's, there's a line from Albert Camus, I think, it is, which he says that there are these moments that we have, typically when we're young, where something profound opens up. Could be in wonder or in just uh, curiosity or in a sense of beauty or a sense of uh, love or whatever. And he says that uh, much of our lives is to find out what those initial openings were about and let them get bigger <laughs> and let them be more there in our adult lives. So I think they're very crucial. And I mean, a lot of, a lot of Buddhist practices, um, I, I sometimes think that Buddhist practices fit in two, two categories which are somewhat parallel to these two models. On the one hand, we learn to be mindful and we study, and we study particularly a lot of the way the mind gets distracted, we study how we get caught in suffering, our contracted states, and then we also deliberately cultivate more awakened states, like, I think mindfulness is an awakened state, like mindfulness could be joy, which is related to wonder, joy, loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, spaciousness, understanding, and so forth, and we cultivate, on the, we do both of those, we we cultivate both awakened states, and as we do that, at times we can really hang out with those states for a long time. And I think it partly what happens is it starts shifting our sense of who we are away from, I am this more contracted person with this and that history and so forth, which is of course true on one level, more towards I am this awake you know, inherently awake being who's having this, these other experiences come through me. Do you get that sense of the shift? And I think as we hang out more in the awakened states, our center of gravity shifts. It's one reason why it's really good to practice a lot, because we hang out there more, more and more. But thank you, Oswaldo, right? Right. Thank you. Please. I'm, I'm interested particularly in the contracted states and, and yeah. perhaps your experience as a therapist because my experience with others and myself yeah. is that there's a lot of preference for that, which is most commonly called <coughs> resistance, I think. Yeah. And that you know people are offered ways out. Even even in taking, you know, you take these ten days of antibiotics and your disease will go away. Yeah. So they take six days and then they stop. Yeah. And I, I just, and I presume this kind of thing happens fairly regularly in therapy as well as practice, and I just wondered if you have any further comments. Yeah. So I'm actually not a therapist. Ah, okay. okay. I misunderstood. Uh, but but um, sorry for the misled. I've, I've been trained in therapy, but I'm not a therapist, if that makes sense. Um, so I'm, you know, the, what I do do a fair amount of one-on-one -on -one work, which I actually don't call anything. But it's, <laughs> uh, but it's, if it had to fit some uh, categorization, it'd be something like spiritual counseling. But I mostly uh, see people about every three or four weeks. And so the center of gravity is on what they're doing in between meetings. Rather, you know, we do some, some experiential work at times, but it's, it's um, the center of gravity is on their own practice between meetings. Um, but, but, but I can answer the question nonetheless. Um, that, yeah, it's, um, I think everyone has to, to uh, work with something like that resistance at some point, and it's very, very common. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's like we were saying earlier, maybe with um, Clint's question, that, the, that the, um, the contracted states are where we've lived and they're very familiar, and there's a kind of strange comfort that our suffering gives us. Um, it's important at a certain point, 
and this is as, as the awakening process occurs, really to ask oneself or ask another person, if I'm working with that person, what do you really want? You know, and there's some, there's some very important uh, work to be done to, to, uh, to be with the resistance, see what it's about. Often the resistance, when one looks beneath it, the surface, there's actually something very helpful there. You know, so an example. You know, um, I'll give an example that, that's occurred with a few people I work with. Uh, they have problems having enough time for meditation practice because they like to stay up late. You know, and surf the internet or watch television or something like that, right? And it comes up as an issue when we talk together. And when we've... Uh, when we look into it more, it's, it, on one level it could be seen as a kind of resistance to practice, kind of sabotaging chances to have enough time for practice. It could be seen in one way like that. But when we look at it carefully, there's actually, we actually find um, something like um, the teenager wanting to have a little bit of free time in the evening and just have some free open time just to do whatever I want to do. And, and so it's possible to actually touch that, that yearning for freedom and ask, is this the best way to do it? <laughs> is this the best way to, is to honor? So the resistance can often have something quite um, important connected with it, but it's, it could be a, not a very skillful strategy to get, you know, to get the deep freedom that one wants. There's more skillful strategies than staying up very late and surfing the internet, right? If one really wants to get at a deeper freedom. So, so the resistance sometimes can be connected with these, these qualities that we have to investigate and kind of tease out rather than just by willpower, I'm not going to stay up late. That's not going to work if it doesn't honor what's there, right? So, so that's quite important. That, that's what I've found. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So, but that can come from one's own inquiry into one's own resistance. What's there? So not necessarily just trying to defeat it. Because that could, my experience is most of, and this is true of contracted states as well, in our states of suffering, usually there's some wisdom there. Now, our contracted states came often because, you know, like my example with anger. My suppression of my anger at a certain age was quite skillful because it enabled me to get love, right? At age 40 or 50, maybe there's a better way to get love, right? So that's, um, but we have to kind of not just defeat the contraction, but actually honor it in some way, respect it, but then ask, uh, maybe that was okay developmentally at one point, but is it okay now? So, so in terms of the, the Buddhist yeah. hindrances, it sounds like it yeah. can be the very difficult, difficult task of discovering what is delusion. Yeah. You know, greed, greed and aversion are you know, seem fairly clear. But. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Yeah. To really, um, yeah, we really have to study our own confusion, our own contractedness. So I think that um, just as uh, that—that's really what the first model. That's a big part of what we do. We really, you know, we sit with our um, difficult emotions and we sit with them over and over again, hour after hour. And in that process, something opens up and we, we discover something. So that's really, really crucial. And if one hasn't done that work, trying to work with the second model, you can see how it's not going to really be that stabilized, right? You have to, so that work has to be done, but it can be, it's more a matter of how do you balance the two. Thank you, Donald. We Thank you. Close. Do we have any announcements today? Yeah. Um, the annual LGBT retreat is happening at Spirit Rock. Uh, it's a six-night silent, <coughs> silent retreat, and it's been going on for about 16 years. Uh, taught by Irina Weissman and Larry Yang, and. Um, uh, Pascal Eau Claire from Montreal this year. Uh, and it's uh, quite a wonderful experience. About 85 people uh, are able to 
to sign up. I'm not sure how far along the registration is, but it starts uh, December 13th, so just a month month away. And it's quite a, an amazing uh, experience to be together uh, as a community and be meditating for, for six nights. So if anybody would like to, uh, you know, uh, try that. Um, it's a sliding scale, and it's quite... Uh, quite beautiful up at Spirit Rock for those of you who have not been there uh, spiritrock.org is the website and all the information is on there and, uh, can I just add that um, probably probably most of you know Larry and some of you know Arena I think probably but um, Pascal is, all, is a gem he's originally from Montreal and he has theatrical training <laughs> So he's really, really, really funny. He's like a stand-up comic at times. So just, just to <laughs> a little plug. Let you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, this afternoon at four o'clock, the San Francisco Choral Society is uh, doing a, a gorgeous uh, concert of uh, music, either with French text or by French composers. The main piece is the Dorfly Requiem, which is sonically beautiful. And we did it last night, and we always get better. Um, I have the honor of assisting Arena on a day long on Desire. Desire is obsession and the desire for freedom. On December 4th at the East Bay Meditation Center. And you know Arena, there'll be a lot of women there. She's got quite the following, so it'd be lovely to see some others come. Uh, yes, an annual uh, GBF Thanksgiving Day potluck is happening again this year on Thanksgiving Day at my place in East Bay. Uh, if you're interested in coming, uh, feel free to take a flyer and also let me know uh, what, you, what dish you might want to bring. Thank you. Uh, Val, thank you for coming today. You're welcome. And our speaker next week is Paul Winternitz. <coughs> Do we have a host? Oh, Mark. No. Yes, I'm the host today. Um, and welcome to a little bit of food and to tea, and just make sure that you clean your cup with warm, soapy water and rinse it off with a bit rack. And there's a sign up sheet at the credenza that you can sign in. And I think there's maybe some newsletters there. Like to pick up, um, and a few of us meet at twelve thirty after the social to get together and head out for lunch. And um, I will uh, be walking around with the Donna Bowl, and the suggested donation is five to eight dollars, or whatever feels right for you. And I think that's it. <coughs> Just a few announcements. I left out on the table out in the, um, whatever this area is called, the foyer, maybe. Um, I left out uh, on the table um, some brochures for Spirit Rock, which you can just take, and also some flyers for upcoming retreats. One that I'm doing uh, for the winter solstice. I guess it's right after the retreat you mentioned, so we could do both. And it's... Um, it's, it's called Embracing the Dark, Inviting the Light, a four-day retreat, also with uh, John Travis and Heather Sundberg. And then before that, um, there's another flyer on, De on December 12th. I'm doing a day-long uh, with um, Heather Monroe Pierce uh, called Embodied Awakening Through Meditation and Dance. And Heather leads kind of ecstatic and contemplative dance. And it's very, very good. It's done with music. It's pretty. We'll do two one-hour dance sessions. So, so it's pretty, pretty neat. And otherwise, if you want to stay in touch, I have a, a sign-up sheet. I send e an email out about my schedule about three or four times a, a year, not not very often. So if you want to uh, stay connected, you could put your name on that list with your email address. And then lastly, I have. I brought a few copies of the book that I did, which I you know, haven't talked about the theme very much, but on the connection of inner work and social service and social change. And it's called The Engaged Spiritual Life. I just brought a few copies of that here if you want to take a look. And, and if you buy it, I'm willing to sign it. 
<laughs> and then I, then I have uh, a few copies also of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship Journal, the last three issues. One of them is on awareness and sexual engagement. Another one has articles on, um, by Alice Walker and on Rwanda, Israel, the Middle East. And then the latest issue is called Hearing the Cries of the Unheard. So you can come take a look. I have to sell them, but they're not too expensive. They're like $7 an issue. So a little bit of shopping after the <laughs> <laughs> First, letting whatever has been helpful from our time together. It might be related to the talk or uh, the discussion, or perhaps something totally separate that just occurred to you in the meditation or this morning that's important. Just inviting to be present to any, any insights, anything that was helpful, along with any intentions that come out of the morning to give some space for those two, two qualities. And then we, we finish by acknowledging that we come together, engage in practices, and support each other very much to help ourselves, but also to serve others, to help others, that our practice is both for ourselves and for others. And we offer the fruits of our time together in our practice, both to everyone here in this hall, and then beyond these walls, out into the world, for the benefit and healing of all beings. Thank you so much. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.